Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast all about Agatha Christie. Today, we're going to be discussing Agatha Christie's third full-length novel, Murder on the Links. This novel was first published in May 1923 by The Bodley Head. That's the same publisher that published Christie's first two novels, The Mysterious Affair at Styles and The Secret Adversary. We are going to try something new in this episode. Previously, we had been doing synopses of the plot in under two minutes to keep it as short as possible, since listening to plot summaries can get a little tedious, and then diving into the mystery puzzle elements of the story. But we're going to try to be a little bit more holistic with how we describe the mystery puzzles of these Agatha Christie whodunits. And actually, before we begin, I want to just give credit to two different people. First is Karen Woodward, who wrote a really useful article called How to Write a Murderously Good Mystery. And in that article, she uh, cites W.H. Auden, who wrote uh, also a very helpful essay, The Guilty Vicarage, Notes on the Detective Story by an Addict. W.H. Auden was a huge, huge mystery novel fan, and we are huge mystery novel fans, so we are going to steal from both Auden and Karen Woodward as we try to figure out exactly what makes these mystery puzzles tick. We're going to begin with the murder itself. And in Murder on the Links, the murder victim is Paul Renault, who is a wealthy businessman with an unknown and mysterious past. He recently settled in France with his wife and his son, who is also about 20 years old. He's, he's a rather young adult. But we don't know all of this immediately, because most of what we know is the fact that Poirot, who seems to be very bored with lap dog cases, right, he gets a letter, a desperate letter, from Monsieur Renault, um, begging for Poirot's help because he is in fear for his life. So this, of course, because Poirot and thus Hastings also are very, very bored. And apparently Hastings is taking time off from being a secretary to um, a member of parliament, I believe. Which is the first time I ever knew what Hastings is day job yeah, was. Yeah, exactly. I, I, had no, I had no recollection of this, and this was the first time that I realized that. Um, but yeah. apparently the member of parliament um, does not need him for a few weeks, so they can just <laughs> <laughs> jump off. And lo and behold, when they get to France and they get to Paul Renault's uh, estate, they find out that they are too late. Paul Renault is dead. He was actually murdered the night before. And that is our murder victim. So that's kind of the, you know, inciting incident of the story. Obviously, in all murder mysteries, the murder is what gets us going. Then the next thing I think we need to figure out is who our lists of suspects are. Uh, Paul Renault, murder victim, he has a wife, Madame Renault, who is actually found tied up the morning after this murder takes place by her maid. And she claims that these two South American gangsters essentially broke into their house at two in the morning. They tied her up, gagged her, and uh, took her husband away, grabbed a uh, letter knife that uh, was sitting on the desk in their bedroom, and that was the last that she saw of any of them. And then she has a son who is supposed to be catching a boat to South America, but the boat was delayed. Oh, his son's name is Jack. But he came back because he missed the boat. 
So, you know, now he's back also at uh, Villa Genevieve. Then uh, we have Madame Dubreuil, who is a neighbor of the Renault. She's a bit mysterious, and we quickly learn that she's been getting significant payments from Monsieur Renault, the murder victim, in the months leading up to his death. So we don't know the reason for those payments yet. There's a lot of speculation yet to come. And she has a daughter who, I think it's pronounced differently in the adaptation, but who I will call Marthe. She's called the girl with the anxious eyes when Poirot first sees her. Which was actually, oh. by the way, I learned that that was a, an alternate title for the novel when it was, it really? was published in serial form as The Girl with the Anxious Eyes. Yeah. Oh, that would actually have been a much better title. Right? All we need to know about her as a suspect is that she and Paul, the victim's son, were carrying on a love affair. Two more people. There is a woman named Bella Duveen who we, we don't learn this for a long time, but we do ultimately learn that she is one half of a twin sister vaudeville-style tumbling act. Yes, that is correct. A tumbling act. We do hear her name very early on because she is the writer of a letter that is found in the murder victim's overcoat pocket. It's very obvious that she is in love with um, whoever she was writing this letter to. Uh, and it is also theorized that she was around the night of the murder. Some people claim to have seen her. Uh, we're not exactly sure what's going on with her. Uh, we also don't see her for a long time. So a lot of mystery surrounding Bella Duveen. The book opens with Captain Hastings, and he meets a sort of saucy young lady on the train uh, to Calais. She's almost, she struck me as a little, like, Flapperish. I think very she's, flapperish. She's a little bit of like a 20s dame. Oh, and flirty. She's very flirty. She mm-hmm. keeps like ducking her eyes underneath a newspaper to glance over at Captain Hastings. She will give her name to Hastings as Cinderella, and uh, she will also uh, trick Hastings into showing her the murder weapon. And then stealing it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Hastings. Oh, Hastings. Always getting, always getting tricked by various people. So those are the main characters. Uh, although I, I to, to be fair, we are leaving out one, one other character. There is a French inspector named Giraud who is rather a buffoon and a bully. And he and Poirot engage in a competition as to who can figure out uh, the murderer soonest um spoiler alert poirot wins because he is indeed the best detective in the world we'll talk about this later but there's i think significant divergence in how that competition is handled in the book versus the televised adaptation so those are our main cast of characters and at this point i think it's helpful to to talk about the world as it seems to be before the mystery is solved. Because that's basically what's happening in all of these murder mysteries. All of these are about an upset in social order, right? That is inherently the role of a mystery novel is to examine the instance of sort of a split in the fiber of society and how you can Mm -hmm. sew it back up. Exactly. So the split, the split in the fiber of the society is that someone murdered this man. And before Poirot figures out who did it, the world is a very confusing place. Um, there is a heck of a lot of confusion as to what is going on. Um, at various points, various people are accused of being the murderer. Um, it's suggested at one point that his wife 
is jealous of the love affair that he was carrying on with his neighbor. And then that's the reason why this, this man uh, had been paying his neighbor big sums of money. At another point, uh, it suggested that the man's son killed him because he wanted his inheritance as soon as possible. There's a lot of sort of back and forth and confusion and clues floating around all over the place. Not only that, but I would note that a lot of these elements are really, really stacked up front in this book. Mm -hmm. Like, we learn about a lot. We learn about, like... I think the will, we learn about the possible affair, we learn about Bella, we learn about the neighbor. Yeah, it reminded me, and this isn't surprising, because this really is the second whodunit mystery puzzle that Agatha Christie wrote, since The Secret Adversary, as we discussed, was a departure, and that was a thriller, a spy story. Right, Um, It's really similarly structured to Styles in that the clues are very, are concentrated. And the same thing really Mm -hmm. happened in styles where pretty much in one chapter, one and a half chapters, we got everything or almost everything. And the same thing really happens here. You know, it's all where it's a lot of it is outside, whereas in styles, it was all inside of this one house here. We have a body that is dressed only in underclothes with an overcoat. That's too long for the body. It's face down in a grave that's built in a golf course with a lead pipe next to the body that no one can explain. There's a watch that is uh, uh, smashed yet still working that is mysteriously two hours ahead, um, and no one can account for for that. Um, Just like a lot, a lot of stuff that is um, thrown at us in a short amount of time. And working off of my long-term memory of other Agatha Christie novels, I think that she gets a little bit better at spacing these clues out, at least over the first third of the book, as opposed to, like, one chapter within the first third of the book. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly, incredibly condensed. It's actually what makes, ends up making this, and I mean, I not to leap to judgment here, but it ends up making it a little bit tedious going forward. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I, and I think it's, I think it's tedious and a little, for a Christie novel, I found it to be less of a satisfactory read than what I'm used to, partially because of the concentration of physical clues. But then, This one in particular relies really heavily on the similarity between the the case in front of us and a case from 22 years earlier. And the problem is that Poirot, of course, with his amazing recall and his experience in crime, recalls this case himself. And then we're told about the case, and it's an entire other chapter where we're told about this case 22 years earlier of, again, a wife who was tied up, bound and gagged in a bed, and her husband had, was murdered. And it turns out that the wife seems seems to have been in on it, including with a lover to inherit her husband's money and then abscond with it. And that's fine. It's it's not necessarily, it's not a cheat or anything, to well, I don't even think it's an uncommon mystery plot line. I feel like that is actually a thing that occurs relatively frequently in mystery novels. It's not an uncommon, it's, but but what bothers it for me? What makes Christie? What I think Agatha Christie does so well, and what makes it so satisfying usually for me is that she's 
tends to be, it's show don't tell. She's, she, she tends to, she really doesn't tell because she's doing her, she's doing everything she can to bury well, clues, the right? Very, the, the, the drawing room scene at the end. <laughs> right. Well, what I mean, but what I mean by the show don't tell is that she's doing everything she can to just put, put clues in there and then let you as the reader mm-hmm. sift through them, take them out and then do with them what you will. But the there oh by the way there's a previous case that was exactly like this and now I'm going to tell you about it it's all tell so it's very I felt very passive as I was reading through that as a reader but, in a way that I'm so, not used to as a as a Christie reader I didn't like it right right I completely understand that and I would point out that in the adaptation they chose to open it with a newsreel, which mm-hmm. is very easy to telegraph information through. Mm-hmm. But they have the opening uh, newsreel in the adaptation of Murder and the Lynx, um, a newsreel that completely discusses this earlier murder case. Yeah. And you're basically giving away everything at the beginning when you do that. And it actually is a little bit telling to how much this is shoehorned into the book because, you know, it comes much later in the book where Poirot is researching this earlier murder case. Mm -hmm. But when you put it up immediately in the adaptation, it's like, oh, well, this all just falls apart as a puzzle, right? But no, I, well, I had the opposite reaction where I actually appreciated that it was given to us early on and that we at least could recall, could rely on our own memories from earlier in the episode to, to be like, Oh, right. That grainy footage of that woman sort of, I guess looks like maybe Oh, you thought it better followed the rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I know what you, I know what you mean in that a newsreel starting any of these episodes is such a tell. It's like, okay, uh, (laughs) I need, I obviously need to pay attention to everything and it's going to be, like directly like this information slash photos, whatever are going to be directly lifted out of it. But at least I'm the, I saw it. It's still not ideal, but I, for me, it actually worked better. It certainly worked better for a television episode. I think that it's biggest fault is that it drew attention to the flaw in the book that it's something that we can't know. So it's essentially violating one of the detective rules, right? Yes. And that is a big, big problem, especially to me. Like, I really just don't think that you should violate those rules in a detective novel. I don't think Christy thought so either. But she kind of shoehorns it in there yeah. in a way that you're just supposed to be like, oh, well, Poirot knows this, and now he's kind of telling you this, and so you should just right. go along with well, it. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't violate it because we are being told. I mean, the, the rule is that we, uh, you're being given enough information as the reader to solve the murder mystery on your own. And that rule is not being violated. It's just that the giving of the information, I think Christy usually does a much better job at making that a more dynamic interaction between reader and story than right. by That's sitting, fair. by just being like, Oh, by the way, here's this, here's this case that happened 22 years ago. And also, by the way, the woman in it is the same is, is the neighbor. So there you go. Deal with that. <laughs> it's just right, not very yeah. satisfying. I actually think the the problem or like the reason why we have this weird kind of plopping in of a previous case like that is because Christy, when she was coming up with the plot for this book, very much based it on a real life French case that was that exact scenario 
of a wife having been tied up. And then it turned out that she was actually in on a plot against, against her husband who had been murdered. So I think she just, I think she was so focused on that, that she kind of transposed it directly into the story and she didn't do it as artfully as she may perhaps have done if she had just made it up herself as she does countless times before, you know? I would be interested to know more about the uh, French case. Well, she mentions the case in her autobiography, and she writes, My third book was Murder on the Links. This, I think, must have been written not long after a cause celeb which occurred in France. I can't remember the name of any of the participants by now. It was some tale of masked men who had broken into a house, killed the owner, tied up and gagged the wife. The mother-in-law had also died, but only apparently because she had choked on her false teeth. <laughs> Luckily, Christy left that little side plot out. Um, anyway, that's, this is Christy's anyway. Anyway, the wife's story was disproved, and there was a suggestion that it was the wife who had killed her husband and that she had never been tied up at all or only by an accomplice. It struck me as a good plot on which to weave my own story starting with the wife's life after she had been acquitted of the murder. A mysterious woman would appear somewhere, having been the heroine of a murder case years ago. I said it in France this time. It's, you know, it's not a, it's not a super organic way to start with an entire case as a backstory. And I think she just didn't really finesse that backstory as well as she could have. Well, let's actually, that's kind of a good uh, segue into how we eventually get from the way that the world seems to be and all the confusions that are swirling around with this case and the case that came before it and then the world as it actually is. Mm -hmm. So not only are we told that uh, the neighbor, Madame Dubray, is the woman from 22 years ago who had been tied up and potentially a co-conspirator to her husband's murder. She was in fact acquitted in that trial, um, largely because of, um, apparently some very compelling testimony that she gave herself. And we're, we're made to believe that she's a, you know, a very intelligent conniving woman who is probably guilty of, of that crime, though she went free. And, um, but not only was she part of that crime, the murdered man, Paul Renault was in fact her lover from that whole escapade. And he was the one who was believed to have, uh, concocted that, um, uh, you know, scenario of murdering her, her husband. Um, and then he just disappeared. So that was why Paul Renault had such a mysterious past and he never wanted to talk about his past or he could never account for it. It's because he had had this scandal. He then moved to Canada. He married. He had a son. He became respectable slash rich in, you know, South America. And then he moved back to France. And conveniently for purposes of this story, <laughs> very, very, very conveniently, conveniently. For, <laughs> for Paul Renault himself, he happened to move right next door to this woman who he had, you know, been embroiled in scandal with 22 years ago. She, of course, recognizes him and she starts blackmailing him. So that was the reason for those payments that he had been making every month. There was no affair going on between the two of them. He was actually incredibly devoted to his wife. Uh, Paul Renault decided to fall back on his old scheme And Poirot makes this statement of criminal psychology where he says, 
that criminals often fall back on the same modus operandi, where if you kill someone by drowning them in a bathtub, you tend to do that over and over again, even though it doesn't really make sense from a rational viewpoint because it makes you easier to catch. It's just, it's just what well, you do. If it, if it, if so it worked that's the first why time, it will work the second time, and it will work the third right. time, and it will work the fourth time. Right. So that's why Paul Renault tries this scheme again, and he uh, tied up his wife. And um, the plan was for him to disappear after doing that. The wife would tell the story about these two South American men having come in and abducted him. And then there would be a body that was found in this shallow grave on the links next to the Renault's villa. And uh, Madame Renault would falsely identify the body as her husband. And that body, also in a oh, rather convenient twist, a hobo. <laughs> a hobo. <laughs> more convenient twists. It's still not as insanely convenient as uh, the secret adversary, but there there are definitely a couple of coincidences that that happen. I mean, in this a random a random dead hobo that could fit in similar clothes. And <laughs> that's. It's France in the 1920s. I'm sure there were there were a fair amount of um, hobos wandering the, the countryside. Uh, Write it, writing in hobo code on <laughs> yes, uh, like <laughs> riding riding the rails, riding the French rails. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. So they were going to. So this hobo wandered onto the villa and died of an epileptic fit while Paul Renault was trying to eject him. So they uh, seized this opportunity and were going to substitute the hobo's body, um, disfiguring his face with that lead pipe. There comes there there comes in that red that lead pipe. And again, Madame Renault would uh, uh, falsely identify the body as her husband. And this is where, so in terms of clues, they get us from the world as it seems to be in the world to what it actually is. This, I think, is the most clever and devious clue of the entire book and the one that I enjoyed the most, both on the page and then especially in the ITV adaptation with David Suchet. So Madame Renault, when she is untied from the bed and informed Madame, your husband, you know, your husband's body has been found on the links. This is, of course, according to plan. They, they were, you know, according to the plan, she would go look at the body and say, yep, it's my husband. Oh, well. And then, you know, eventually meet up with him months later. So Poirot watches her reaction when she is told that her husband's body has been found. And he's, he's not, not satisfied with it. He doesn't believe in her grief. Madame Renault, I'm sorry to have to tell you that your husband has been found murdered. Oh, no. He was stabbed last night with the knife that was taken from your room. Oh, God. Why? Why, Paul? then when they actually go and watch Madame Renault identify the body, of course, it actually is her husband. It is not the hobo with a disfigured face. And she loses it. Madame Renault, the identification, it can wait. No, I'd like to get this over with. Paul? No. 
Take her back to the Villa Genevieve. She goes into a dead faint and Poirot says, oh, I'm, I, went, I was an imbecile because, you know, never have I seen such true grief in a woman. So in the moment, Poirot doesn't even understand the significance of this clue and the reason for the discrepancy between the two reactions. But I, with, with no disrespect to the actress who plays Madame Renault in... You thought she was faking it? <sighs> That's, I mean, this is what's really hard because, it, well, and you know what? It, that was my reaction. You know what? You know that what it reminded me reaction. of? She did. I've only seen. I've only ever seen one actress play bad acting and then good acting back to back, really convincingly. And that was Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah, sure. Because in Mulholland sure. Drive, there's this amazing moment where she has to be really a really bad. Uh, neophyte actress and then she walks into an audition and she blows them away with her acting and she blows the audience away too because we've we've just watched her be really bad and then she's amazing and to me that didn't happen here I kind of didn't believe her either well my reaction was seriously like a ham actor (laughs) wait that was your note after you watched that scene it's literally my like my like my notes typing while I was watching because it's so non-credible it's 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 bad but that's a really cool I think that's a cool clue it's an unusual clue to me and to me again that's one of those like it's being laid in there and it's you know it requires a lot of active synthesizing on the part of the reader and then when we find out about it after the fact it just kind of changes the way that we were looking at the story before like that is the kind of clue that to me is a very very satisfying Chrissy not just being told a, a backstory about a murder that was similar to the murder we just read about well so Monsieur Renault has dressed the hobo who has you know previously died from an epileptic attack <laughs> this now corpse, I guess, on the property, they have to dress in clothes that can be convincingly those of uh, Monsieur Renault. And so the clothes, you know, aren't fit properly. And on top of that, the real Monsieur Renault, when his real body is found murdered, he is wearing uh, his underclothes, and too big of a jacket. Of course, the significance of that is that the letter that was found in the pocket of the overcoat that Paul Renault, the murder victim, was wearing was not actually meant for him. It was not addressed to him because it wasn't his overcoat. And the letter, Christy very carefully has the letter being addressed to my dearest one, not my dear Paul, not my dear Jack. So we're not we're not to jump to conclusions about who it's actually written to. It's a good thing to always be suspicious of who a letter is addressed to. It's a good thing. I mean, we say this every time, but I can't stress it enough. Every time a letter letter. appears in a Christie novel, there's something significant about it. I'm and I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure there's a million red herring letters that we could point to, but those are the the exceptions that prove the rule. So there aren't there can't be a million of them. I'm sure there are a handful of letters that aren't that significant in the novels, but they almost always have some significance to either the main mystery plot or a side plot or something like that. So the last element of our 
as you can see, much longer, but I think much more thorough <laughs> synopsis of the way that these mystery puzzles work is what we're calling the reckoning. And just to recap, to, to give a sense, again, we start with the murder, then we have our list of suspects, and then, you know, about midway midway to three-quarters of the way through the book, we have this sense of the world as it seems to be, who the main suspects are, what the, you know, main sources and points of intrigue are. Then we have our solving of the case, the world as it actually is. And the final element is the reckoning. And that is where the murderer gets his or her comeuppance, whatever that may be. Sometimes it's getting arrested. Sometimes it's dying. Sometimes it's getting away. (laughs) We should backtrack briefly because we have left out Jack and Bella and their romance and the secondary complication that that has caused in the plot. Oh, sure. So in the book, and this is another divergence between the book and the adaptation, but in the book, um, Jack and Bella had a love affair before Jack started being interested in in the neighbor, Martha. So Jack threw over Bella for Martha. Essentially, Bella was very upset about this, which is why she was writing that letter to Jack, saying how much she still loves him. Jack and Bella, though... Um, really do uh, still love each other. And, you know, we get to this conclusion, Poirot, in his his way of uh, understanding the softer side of human psychology as well as the harder side, explains to Hastings that they both were essentially willing to sacrifice their own freedom for the other. Bella and Jack came upon each other in the links when Jack's father, Paul Renault, had already been killed. So they see a, both of them saw a corpse and the other person and assumed that the other person had had murdered uh, Monsieur Renault. Essentially, Jack, when he's accused of the crime, Jack lets himself be taken away because he's worried that Bella is going to eventually be caught for it. And then Bella marches in very dramatically and gives herself up for Jack. And uh, Poirot says that that proves that they, they in fact love each other. And uh, at the end of the novel, they end up together. And I will, I will note also, and this is, I think, another parallel, significant parallel between this story and her first, Styles. Agatha Christie's first, yep, yeah. uh, whodunit. The side plots both involve two couples who end up happily uh, married at the end well, of the story. You know, I would just like really just put this as an aside, but Poirot is, he is the matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. He is of. a bel- he is the Belgian Yenta. Yep. But it's, I mean, it's striking when you think about it structurally that we have these two mystery puzzles written not quite back to back as secret adversaries in between them, but written very, you know, close to each other. And they both, they both involve two side plots that account for a lot of the other clues that result in these two couples being happy. And it's one of them, of course, is Bella and Jack. Then the other one more significantly for future stories is Captain Hastings and Cinderella. I think that Christy was extra happy for Cinderella and Captain Hastings to get together because she really, really wanted rid of Captain Hastings. Oh, yes, she did. And I actually can quote her directly on that. Um, Oh, okay. Oh, yes, I can. From her, you guessed it, her autobiography. (laughs) So Agatha Christie writes um, in her autobiography about Murder on the Links, 
I think Murder on the Links was a moderately good example of its kind, though rather melodramatic. This time, I provided a love affair for Hastings. If I had to have a love interest in the book, I thought I might as well marry off Hastings. Truth to tell, I think I was getting a little tired of him. I might be stuck with Poirot, but no need to be stuck with Hastings, too. And that's so Christy. She's just so... She's, she has no, no mercy. Just, just merciless. She just wants to get rid of people. Well, I think it feels rushed partially because she just wants to get rid of Hastings. But then I actually have another quote from her in her, in her autobiography about love stories in general, which I think mm-hmm. is actually really useful. And this is when she, this is her writing about the mysterious affair at Styles. She said, I myself always found the love interest a terrible bore in detective stories. Love, I felt, belonged to romantic stories. To force a love motif into what should be a scientific process went much against the grain. However, at that period, detective stories always had to have a love interest. So there it was. And I think you can see that. You can tell that, too. It feels it feels a little bit forced and like she's unwillingly kind of shoehorning it in, in there. A, because she thinks she has to, and B, because she just wants to get rid of poor Hastings. It's not, it's not her best. The one thing, and we were talking about this a little bit before, the one thing that the book does do a lot better than the televised adaptation is that because there are two identical twin sisters, because there are, because there are identical twin sisters, Do, uh, Bella Duveen is the one who's in love with Jack. She's the one who it was suspected of murder. Dulcie, or Cinderella, is kind of hanging around the murder scene and enticing Captain Hastings to show her the murder weapon and stealing the weapon and whatnot, merely to protect her sister. She's not in love with anyone else other than Hastings. She gradually falls in love with him over the course of the story, and that's fairly grounded. In the, the televised adaptation does away with the twins, which I understand the impulse for it. I just talked about rolling my eyes about twins. They also can then make her a lounge singer, which is a lot more uh, atmospheric and nice to watch than a vaudevillian tumbling act. <laughs> but, um, but no, no, no. But I mean, it does make sense condensing the characters. It just doesn't ultimately make sense if you're still going to unite her with Hastings at the end. It does lead to what is probably my favorite moment in the entire adaptation, which we, we only have in the adaptation. And that is Poirot is the one to go to her and essentially bring her to Captain Hastings at the end in this incredibly romantic tableau by the, by the water. They arrive in a cab and she runs out of the cab and runs into Hastings' arms. And we go inside of the cab and we see that Poirot is the one who brought her there. And he gives just one, after, after she leaves the cab, there's one little look where he looks sad and forlorn and lonely. Yeah, because he's lost his one, he's lost his his partner in crime, literally. (laughs) Exactly. And it's just really, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of characters giving significant looks in cars. The op, like the, the sort of inverse of that look is bear with me at the end of the Devil Wars Prado when Meryl Streep gives her a little smile in the car. (laughs) And it's just, (laughs) I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to shoehorn a Devil Wars Prado reference into this. Congratulations. 
I'm gonna. I'm, I'm. I'm doing my own rolling eyes look out of a car right now. First the Kardashians, then then Meryl Street, Prada? then Meryl's yeah, Prada. Sure. But I love. I, I just love naked moments of of characters alone in cars because a car is a place where I think maybe this is because I live in Los Angeles, but a car is a place where I think people often bare their souls when they're alone. Oh, I mean, I think the very act of singing along to the most embarrassing song that you can possibly think of is an act best committed in a car. I mean, it goes back to the point that we made in last week's episode when he was talking to Marie Marvell, the really strong sense of compassion that the series imbues Poirot with, which I don't really think exists so much in the books, you know? Exactly. And when it makes sense, because when you read about Christie saying, I got so sick of Poirot when he was, you know, the albatross hanging around her neck after after years and years, that really is the character in the books because the character in the books is just not as, he's he's unrelenting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that there's a small, and there's a smallness to that. There's a smallness to his, to his heart. That is that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is, that doesn't really, um, exist in the TV character. And actually there, and the, there's a perfect encapsulation of that in this very adaptation. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier, um, which is that we have this rivalry between Inspector Giraud and Hercule Poirot in the book, Poirot and Giraud, the rivalry escalates and they get to the point where they make a bet. And I believe it's 500 francs. They bet Mm -hmm. 500 francs um, to whoever can actually figure out who the true murderer is. And this is probably a good time to actually explicitly state who the murderer is. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I guess guess you mentioned that. (laughs) Oh, right. That. So it's it's Martha, uh, the neighbor's daughter, the beautiful girl with the anxious eyes, who follows after her devious mother and was only pretending to be in love with Jack the son to get his money. And she happened to overhear Paul Renault and his wife sitting on a bench near the boundary between their two villas discussing their plan to disappear. So she knew she had to do something and she snuck up on Paul Renault as he was in the middle of um, enacting his escape plan and she stabbed him in the back. But, um, just quickly, this rivalry, once we, you know, uh, find out who the, who the murderer is, of course it was Poirot who figured it out. Giraud wrongly thought that, that Jack Renault was the murderer. And in the book, Poirot collects his 500 francs and he buys a model of a foxhound and puts it on his mantelpiece and calls it Giraud. Whereas in the televised adaptation, it's a little bit more fun than that. The wager is not money. The wager is that if Poirot loses, he'll shave his mustache. (laughs) And Giraud uh, very ostentatiously smokes a pipe throughout the episode, and he's known for his pipe in the adaptation, and he says that he will give Poirot his pipe. So at the end of the episode, Giraud comes very chastened to Poirot and says, Monsieur, you've earned you know, the right to my pipe. And he cans it to him in a box and Poirot refuses it and says, no, 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 keep it. 
And then he says with a twinkle in his eye, now whenever you use it, you'll think of me. He doesn't say it in an, in an antagonistic or a mean-spirited way. He says it with a twinkle. And Giraud takes it the right way and actually gives a little smile and says, I think you're right. And Giraud has clearly been bested. And, but it's actually a really nice moment. And it's a nice ending for the story. Poirot of the books is a petty man. So let's just quickly go through the very end of the book at the reckoning. Poirot actually has Madame Renault pretend to disinherit her son in front of Martha. He successfully entices Martha to steal into the house at the Renault's villa and attempt to murder Madame Renault. Conveniently, Martha falls, hits her head, and dies. <laughs> so it's a very convenient ending. The reckoning, the reckoning is swift and it is final. <laughs> Um, yeah. We also get our happy pairing where Jack and Bella realize that they've been in love with each other the whole time. And Hastings and Dulcie, a.k.a. Cinderella, also realize they're in love and they all have plans to go off together to Argentina. And that is the last tidbit that we get at the end of the book. And we shall see what does, in fact, happen to Hastings and Poirot in future novels. Okay, so let's talk about the rankings. First up in the category is the mystery puzzle plotting of this story. My problem with it is that Mysterious Affair Styles, my problem with the mystery puzzle plotting was that there was certain specialized knowledge of bromide powders and whatnot that made it difficult to guess. Here, I think it's more a lack of ingenuity, which is that's such a relative statement when it comes to Christie. All, all, every Christie has significant levels of ingenuity, ingenuity to it, but a lot of this just didn't really hang on an interesting idea like a double bluff or double jeopardy or any of those, those sorts of twisty-turny clues that we got in Styles. There are a couple of them here. Like I mentioned, I like the, the differing responses of the wife to finding out that her husband is dead um, when she hears about it and then when she sees him. They, you know, It has its moments, but to me it just doesn't provide as much overall satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, I am with you on the satisfaction level. I, I, I don't think that the mechanics themselves are actually that off. And so I, don't think, I think it's that the mechanics aren't off, but the mechanics don't shine. That's fair enough. I, you know, I'll give you the, the six. That's fine. Okay. All right. So six out of ten for mystery puzzle mechanics. Now for mystery puzzle credibility. I, you know, I actually don't have a huge problem with anything in terms no. of credibility in the story. The flip side of not exciting is incredibly believable. Right. <laughs> Mundanity is credible, you know? Right, so, and like really, really petty romantic allegiances, which is mostly the case mm-hmm. here, is also really believable. Yeah. I would actually give Murder on the Links a pretty high score when it comes to the mystery puzzle credibility. Like an 8 out of 10. Probably go 7. 7 out of 10? Okay. I don't, like, I don't, like, I don't like the twins. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. They're cheap. Twins are cheap. <laughs> um, so then we get to the characterization of the series-long characters here, obviously, Poirot and Hastings. I liked them in this. We might, yeah. this might, we might be at a disagreement here, but like I liked Poirot got extra French, even though he's yes, not he French, did. even though he's a Belgian. 
to yes, be clear. Yes, Extra-continental. My beef is that the Hastings love angle feels so shoehorned and just not... Uh, it's not it's not organic to the story. It doesn't even particularly it's seem not. organic to the character. I don't ever believe yeah. that they're actually in love. I don't care. And it's Hastings, and I want to care. And I found that very disappointing. I don't disagree with you at all, but I do feel like versus, let's say, the mysterious Everett styles, mm-hmm. I felt so much more attached to them in this. Right. As a pair. Yeah. As a pair, they're dynamic. And I mean, this, I might be giving so much weight to the beginning, but the beginning of a book is important. Mm-hmm. And... I really felt like their relationship as they jaunted off to France to, like, go solve a mystery seemed so concrete to me. I mean, I could live with a 5 out of 10. I would give them lower. I would give a 3 or a 4, but I could live with a 5. Might give them a 7. You would give them a 7? I guess we can give them a 6. I guess we can. Yeah, I'd probably give them a 4. So we can we can round up because that would be, like, a 5.5. So we can, five or we a can six. round up to a 6. It's fine. You're so resentful. <laughs> um, so then the other characters, our, our fourth category, are characters in this book alone. Uh, they're better than in Styles, worse than in The Secret Adversary. And part of that is, you know, the difference between a thriller and a mystery puzzle, because there's, as we right. were saying, very little room to develop any other characters. I, I will say that even though there's not great payoff for Inspector Giraud, he's at least an interesting character. He makes he makes an impression on the page. I wouldn't go so far as to say that's a good impression. <laughs> I don't know. I would. Um, I mean, I would like give it three. below. I mean, I don't, like a three. Yeah, I think a three is fair. And then setting and tone is our last category, and this is where I actually think that this represents a step forward for our Christie critique or it shows that she is actually making a step forward because I think previously when we've given Christie low marks for setting and tone, it's been because of an absence of setting and tone, specifically in styles. I would tend to give at least tone. Let's just deal with tone for a second. I would tend to give tone somewhat low marks but not because it's not there, but because it's actually too much there and I don't like it. I agree with Christy herself that it's really melodramatic. I think it's heavy. There's something oppressive sometimes about the way that this book is written and it's, it's so un-Christy-like. And I think she was just experimenting and she was going for this Gaston LaRue kind of story. And I guess in a way she pulled it off. I just didn't particularly enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tr- it's trying too hard to compensate for the fact that there was an excessive Britishness about the first Poirot in particular, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so I mean, there's a reason there's a reason why it's set in France. Yeah. She went. She she Except she went full French. She didn't go half French. She went full French. That would not be a wrong assessment. Um, I don't know. I mean, I might I, I might just split it down the middle and give it a five. Yeah, I mean, I'm like equally parts torn. Like that's too high. Yeah, let's just call it a five. And, and then our final category, the deductions for ways in which the book is stuck in its own time. I actually think this book does pretty well in that category. I don't know. Would you give it any deductions? I don't, I don't know if I would give it any deductions. I suppose you have a bunch of murderous ladies. 
I mean, I don't know what deduction you want to give ladies, that. Ladies can be murderers. I don't know if there's any. Oh, for sure they can. <laughs> I don't know if there's any sort of indication that they're, you know, murderers because they're ladies. They're, well, I mean, everyone is involved in a romantic entanglement that leads them to murder somebody. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm fine with giving it no deductions for stuck in its timeness. Yeah. I, I, I don't really think that I had anything that seemed particularly offensive or that I was off put yeah. by. Yeah, nothing, nothing really stuck out. So let's be kind. Let's give it its due and not take any deductions for that. Our tally then for Murder on the Links is 6 plus 7 plus 6 plus 3 plus 5, which comes out to 27 out of a possible 50 and puts Murder on the Links one point behind the secret adversary. So our current ranking, secret adversary, number one, oh the murder on the links in a close, just by a hair, number two, and the mysterious affair at Styles oh. in number three for the bronze medal. That is our episode for this week. Please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. It's really, really helpful in terms of getting the word out. And we would, of course, love to hear from you directly. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Instagram at All About Dame. Next week, we are going to be tackling the second short story of Agatha Christie's Another Poirot, titled... The Tragedy at Marsden Manor. Can't wait. Just so you can plan ahead, the week after that, we will be doing our next novel, which is The Man in the Brown Suit. So we have that to look forward to. Two weeks from now. Next week, Tragedy at Marsden Manor. So take care. In the meantime, bye. Bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.